Hello, I'm Liv Bolton and welcome back to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make adventures outdoors a bigger part of your life. Series 6 of The Outdoors Fix is produced in association with outdoor footwear brand Merrill. It's a warm, dry, still morning and I've come to North Wales to meet mountain leader, hiker and trail runner Jack Williams. And we're going to head out for a walk together shortly, but I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the chapters of Jack's outdoors life. In his 20s, Jack was gripped by pursuing expeditions all over the world, including to the Himalayas and the Sahara Desert. He worked in hospitality and retail in between trips to finance them. But a few years ago, he found out that he had testicular cancer. And going through that experience led to changes in his relationship with the outdoors and his adventure goals. He's now a qualified mountain leader, leading groups and courses in Snowdonia, and he's also focused on family, creating outdoor adventures with his two young sons. I want to hear all about his outdoor story, but particularly how getting outside helped him cope with his illness, as well as how he's now shaping an adventurous life for his family in the UK. So I hope you enjoy our chat and I better head back to where I'm meeting Jack for our short walk. Jack, hello. Hello. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here with you and we're in such a beautiful little spot and people can probably hear the water that's nearby us. Can you describe where we are in the country and where we are right now? So we are, this is the Horseshoe Falls, and this is just outside of a town called Clangoughlin, uh, which is in North Wales. I think for a lot of people driving through Snowdonia um, on the A5, they will pass through Clangoughlin. It's a pretty little sort of uh, town on the river. And the Horseshoe Falls, the, I, this was, oh gosh, put my history to the test now, but this <laughs> is uh, made by, this was Thomas Telford's creation um, in, in aid of the canal, basically. It started the canal in the area. Oh, it's wonderful. So it's a, a river going through the valley, beautifully green. We're early summer right now, and the weather today is holding off for us, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yes, it was forecast to not be like this, I think, wasn't it? So, but it's nice and dry and cool at the moment. Exactly. So what we're going to do is we're going to go on a short little walk you're going to take me on, and then we're going to find a spot along the way to record the podcast. But can you just describe the route we're going to do? And is it something that you do often? Uh, I've, I think I've done bits of it often. So uh, I'm sorry if I get us lost. No, we should be okay. There's, we'll go along the side of the river for a little bit. Um, there's a little chapel further up and then um, across the top of, sort of these hills behind us before dropping down to a hill called Velvet Hill, which has been an absolute lifesaver for, for me and my family during lockdown because it's where we, we went on mini adventures oh. probably five times a week. Uh, right. And there's some brilliant views sort of all through the valley from up there as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, I can't wait. Well, should we get going then? Okay, sounds good. Let's go. Cool. Nearly there. <laughs> nice one, up at the top of Velvet Hill. It's a good spot for a picnic, I think, up here. Isn't it? Really flat and yeah, nice and grassy. Up yeah. here. Yeah. There's, there's the river. Oh, there's Clangothan. And the canal looks white from here, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, what it's gorgeous there, day. The rest of it. Yeah. Well, Jack, we've um, sat down, found a little good spot, haven't we? Yeah, it's lovely. We've got views of the amazing hills and valley around us. So what, what's that hill over there? 
on top of the hill, yeah. I'm not too sure what the hill's called, but the, on top is Dinas Bran, uh, so it's an old castle ruin, yeah. um, which it, like, like up here is definitely worth a visit because it, it's, it offers some really amazing 360 views, uh, but it is steep. Yes, so, uh, it does look very steep. Yeah, not very far, but, but very steep. So. Well, I'm glad you've only taken me up Belver Hill because <laughs> I was puffing and puffing up here. My um, fitness after lockdown is much to be desired. Um, firstly, I've got to ask, you grew up in the Midlands, but you've ended up in Clangoslin. So how did that happen? I've always wanted to live in a rural area. It, well, I mean, I grew up in a relatively rural part of the Midlands anyway, mm. um, but of course, I have a bit of a draw to mountains so mm. to be in a hilly area like this is I think maybe was always going to happen um, but my my now wife uh, her family is is local um, when we were expecting our first child we were in the, the Midlands at the time um, when we were expecting we sort of looked at a few different options and, and really found a way to, to take a bit of a leap and I just sort of said to Kat Come on, let's let's go. Pack the bags. We'll, we'll take a bit of a risk, and we'll we'll move to North Wales. And so far, it's it's paid off, and it's Amazing. a lovely place for the the boys to grow up. I was going to say, what an awesome place to have a river and hills right outside their doorstep. Absolutely. So you, Jack, describe yourself as a, a mountain leader, a speaker, an adventurer. Where did this love of the outdoors come from? Were you a very sort of outdoorsy family when you were younger? Um, I grew like I said, I grew up in in quiet. A rural area. I grew up digging dens. We had a, a field that formerly had a horse in it, but I didn't really see much of the horse before my time. But we still had the field and used to dig holes, mm. uh, dens in the middle of it, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I spent ages and ages out, outdoors as a kid. Um, I can't really remember a sort of a, a moment where I thought, you know, I want to go on big adventures. Um, besides, as a child, going into the garden and probably pretending I was on them. Um, it was when I was a bit older, I actually watched a David Attenborough. It might have been a video then, actually. But, mm. um, well, it was an abridged version of Planet Earth. Right. And I sort of decided, uh, you know, I, I want to see this. I want to see some of these amazing places. I mean, the, the wildlife appeal, but some of the incredible scenery. I just thought, I want to go and, and, and visit these in, uh, amazing places. That, that would be, I, I guess, having sort of an outdoorsy, uh, childhood mixed then with that sort of pivotal moment that sort of said right Jack you've got the means now you're more or less old enough to start sort of saving up and, and go and pursue these big adventures that was the moment that I remember most uh, where I decided a life of adventure seems like fun well you did go and do that I mean because you went I think it was when you were in your late teens when you went to Morocco and climbed Mount Tubkal yes how did how did that come about and did you sort of think oh well you know I need to need to go and see these places and, and experience these expeditions for myself um, I suppose it, it's a, a blend between um, the biggest adventures I could sort of uh, find mixed with accessibility so you know I, I was working in a pub at the time um, I, I received a little cash a brown envelope with some cash in it at the end of each week um, so I, I couldn't necessarily really afford the biggest of adventures and Tubcow came around because I think I think it was about 600 pounds that was for flights ev absolutely everything from yeah. the moment you arrived at the airport to when you got back and I thought you know I can I can do that um, and I signed on with a couple of mates who, who drank in the pub that I worked in um, but it turns out as they sobered up they slowly dropped out so <laughs> I ended up I ended up going not on my own because it was a it was a group tour I, I went not knowing anybody and and that was probably one of the best things that could have happened because I said I, I probably wouldn't have booked it in the first place 
if it were not for my friends booking it with me. That said, when they didn't go, it sort of, I guess, gave me the confidence to, to go and pursue adventures in a more sort of solo environment in a way. So, but yeah, Tubka was, was an all, a really good, and I'd recommend it for anyone who's looking to sort of get into bigger adventures and overseas stuff. There's a blend of high altitude. I think it gets to about four, four and a half thousand meters. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's convenient, it's a couple of hours flight away. Yeah, really cool little adventure to get started on. Well, that led to, that sort of first expedition led to many expeditions around the world for you. You went to the Himalayas and you did Everest Base Camp a couple of times. You went to the Sahara Desert. I mean, you've done a lot of big sort of things around the world. And I wondered how you made that happen, because like you say, it is does often take a lot of days of, of holiday and, and also quite expensive. But also, you know, where did that passion for that come from? You know, I think every time I've come back from an adventure, I've, I've come back and I, I've probably had a conversation with my parents and I've said to them, you know what, I'm, I, I really enjoyed that adventure. It was fantastic, but I'm ready now to pursue a career. I'll buy a car and I would, I'd buy a car. I'd go and find the best job I, I could. Yeah, I guess my CV was a bit scatty, uh, having constantly broken up sort of uh, work with I guess effectively what looked like holiday. But uh, I go and find a job, you know, maybe I buy a bike and a computer and stuff like this. And, and then of course, slowly but surely, I say slowly, maybe four months later or something, I would sort of start thinking, you know, no, I'm, I'm getting itchy feet. I'm gonna have to do something. Often, I would just save whilst working as much as I could. A lot of the adventures I did, so my first trip to the Himalayas was done. I think I did ask for some help from my parents and obviously saved quite a bit for that. But once I'd been there, I met a local Sherpa who's a very good friend now. Um, so further expeditions and, and travel over there um, were, were done directly through him, which significantly cut the cost down. Mm. Um, you know, we carried a lot of our own stuff. We relied less on local staff. We still tried to employ as many uh, as much as we could because it, it helps locally. But for our sake, financially, it, it helped that we were sort of um, supported ourselves as much as we could. Um, but as well, because I would go home and think I'm going to get a career and, and all that jazz and I'd buy a car and all that. What I would end up doing is selling it all basically. So right. it, it almost became a little savings account, yeah. this sort of investment in a career and a job and all that. I'd just sell it all on and that would be it, yeah. off I go again. What did you love about being in the Himalayas particularly? Because obviously you went back a lot of times. Um, people, the people. When you, when you said that then, um, like uh, the, the first word that came to mind would be the people. Obviously the views, the culture, everything. But you know, the, I've, I've been to every space camp three times now. And the reason I've done that is because I've just met so many amazing people, local tea house owners and, and the like in the area. Um, and that's why I go back to, to, to visit those amazing people. But I mean, the scenery is just mind blowing. Uh, it's, it it's hard be. to beat, you know, yeah. it's incredible. I actually lived in a monastery for a couple of months teaching English and um, when I woke up and looked to my right there was a window and uh, I could see the mountain Tamsirku out the window and it just I can picture it now when I close my eyes I can see that window and I can see the mountain through it it's there's just nothing quite like it in terms of views but the culture the food keeps me on my toes a bit yeah I like the food but uh, the, the culture everything is just such a vibrant lively place and as well I mean people will say for oh you know I don't know if I want to do Everest Base Camp because it's quite busy you know there's lots of people uh, I guess you don't quite get the cues like you, you see going to the summit of Everest 
But you know, it's not unusual to be going to base camp and be in a line of people walking along. But in actual fact, I think I, I don't, I didn't dislike that. I quite liked that there was a real sort of mountaineering culture uh, sort of in the air. When you're there, you're meeting people who maybe are going to the summit and you could see all the, uh, the you know, people were nervous, they were, uh, all the anticipation of the trek. And I actually really liked that. That must of, be fascinating, yeah. actually. Yeah. The, the atmosphere is just incredible. So. Yeah. Oh, what an experience to, to go there. And so in your late 20s, you've been doing all these expeditions. You, you did have a pivotal moment in your late 20s where you were diagnosed with testicular cancer. Now, can you tell me how to how you found out? Well, I, I found out because I had a, a big lump on on the testicle, um, and it was actually roughly four centimeters wide when when it was discovered, which is weird because I actually don't remember sort of f- feeling it come on. If you, if you know, I just thought, Where's, where's this come from? Where? I just woke up one day and it was there almost. That's how I discovered it. Uh, it was quite painful as well, so it inhibited movement, which again surprised me. Because I, thought, well, I don't remember having this last week. Um, to backtrack a little bit, my father and both my grandfathers not only had cancer, but sadly have passed away from it. Um, and I, it, I, I think what I wanted it to do was to make me more vigilant in the sort of face of some sort of health blip concern something that was a bit of an anomaly a headache that lasted too long or you know am I going to the toilet more than I should or or is there a lump on my Mm. testicle for instance um the reality is I suppose is you know um you discover something like a lump on a testicle and actually the last thing you really want someone to do is to turn around and say you might have cancer Mm. so I think you sort of naturally subconsciously maybe sort of try and ignore it a a little bit because you just don't want to hear that and a part of me part of me really thought I think that's what this is. I think this is cancer. I don't know why I thought that, but mm. um, I guess, you know, every my uncle has had cancer. Uh, you know, pretty much every male in my family on the one side of the family has, has had cancer somewhere along the lines. Um, so I think I figured I'd probably get it at some point. But I didn't do anything for a couple of weeks after, after discovering it. But I turned around to Kat, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I said, you know, I've got a bit of a lump. On, on my testicle and she turned around and she said okay um have you booked a doctor's appointment i haven't no. okay well um I do it or we're not going camping this weekend she was quite firm you know i felt yeah. like i was not getting told off but she was putting her foot down with me yeah. and you know it's a good thing she did really yeah. um i called the doctors i said you know these 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 are my this is my situation this is what i found mm. also i don't know if it makes a difference but this is my family history and they sort of turned around and said right okay um I think at the time they were doing sort of mini phone consultations to see whether you probably really needed to go in. Okay, well, we'll call you back uh, later today. Put the phone down. Um, and I don't know, seven minutes later it, it went. Um, and they said, can you come in this evening or okay. this afternoon? I thought, oh, gosh, here we go. Uh, so I did. Uh, a few years earlier, I'd been to the doctors with a lump, uh, but it was a cyst, I guess a water infection. Just mm-hmm. drink more and, and it went and it did. Mm. So I did sort of think, you know, is it, is it not probably just that again? Could it be that? Probably. Um, but the doctor turned around and he said, look, we can't tell you what it is. Um, he obviously gave it a good inspection. I can't tell you what it is, but I can't tell you it's not cancer. Mm. And for some reason, when he said that, and there was something in the look on his face, and I thought, oh, this is it, isn't it? Um, so that was actually on the night that we were going camping. We were going to the Lake District for the weekend. <laughs> so uh, we parked in Morrison's car park. It made for an interesting shopping trip afterwards. Gosh, yes. Go and pick up uh, some, uh, some brie and a pack of bacon. 
It was a bit, bit, <laughs> a bit weird, but yeah. then it rained all weekend. We got to the Lake District, put the tent up. It was probably about 10 o'clock at night, and the guy in the tent next to us came and shouted at me for making too much noise, banging the pegs in. So yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, probably should have just stayed at home that weekend. <laughs> but, uh, but a week later, I had another appointment, and I was scanned. And I remember the nurse telling me, I'm ever so sorry, after she scanned it there is a lump there. I thought, gosh, you're telling me. <laughs> it's huge. And then a following week, sort of another consultation. And in actual fact, it was about three and a half weeks from that first trip to the doctors, prior to our weekend in the Lake District, to when my surgery was scheduled. Um, they can't tell you whether, I don't know if it's changed now or not, I'm, I don't imagine it has, but they can't tell you if testicular cancer is cancer until they've removed it. They can't do oh, a sort right. of standard biopsy. They, 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 they couldn't tell me that it, it was or it wasn't, but they sort of offered me the opportunity, you know, do you want us to take it off? It might not be, but do you want us to remove the testicle? I thought, well, you know, I've got to take it. <laughs> I've got a spare. So they did, and that was three and a half weeks later. Now, at the time, obviously, there's lots of tests that needed doing, and also they needed to scan me lots to see if it had spread any further. Um, so at the time, I didn't know, but uh, once all those results had come back, which did take a few months, in actual fact, at that three and a half week mark, uh, from first going to the doctors, I was I was cancer free. So I'd gone from discovering the lump to, uh, to, to acting on it, going to the doctors, to being cancer free within about a month. So, um, you know, I was very lucky really. And I didn't need any, it didn't spread anywhere. I didn't need any chemotherapy. Wow. After you'd had the operation, they found that it was cancerous, but they'd already taken it off you. So that yeah. was the end of it. That oh. was it, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's amazing so, news. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. In July, it's my final consultation. Um, which is, a, thanks to the coronavirus, is a phone one, which I think is a bit of a shame, actually. I'd quite like to have gone in yeah. and, and sort of been signed off, really. But I, uh, I'll have a phone call and they'll say, that's it. That's the end of five years. Gosh. But that, that experience then, did it change your thinking about the outdoors? Did the outdoors have a different meaning for you, having gone through that experience? I think it did and it didn't, because at this point I'd already been to the Himalayas uh, sort of five different expeditions in the Himalayas and the Sahara Desert and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know that there was a lot more it, it could have done almost. It was very much a part of, of, of who I was at this stage anyway. I, I appreciate for a, a lot of people maybe a life-changing cha incident such as cancer can maybe turn someone towards doing you know big adventures or skydiving or running or whatever it might be. But for me, I, I guess I was kind of already doing it. That said, the moment I realised I could have cancer. I actually registered to join an Arctic dog sledding expedition, wow. um, and I had to be voted onto it, uh, and, and did manage to actually win a place. So it, it, it was a motivation to get outside a bit more. If anything, almost what it's done is, obviously, as I mentioned, got uh, two two boys now. Um, so if anything, it almost motivated me to sort of focus on an, on another a different kind of adventure which was f family um, but also um, providing them the best opportunity to enjoy the out outdoors so I mean George like I say we come up here with George uh, up Velvet Hill as much as we can he's a bit too heavy to carry now uh, the chunky monkey but um, <laughs> he, even he can just about walk his, his way up here so it, yes it it sort of changed my approach to the out doors if that's the right way to put mm -hmm. it um, but in a completely different way I suppose from the expeditions you you brought it back to the UK a bit in a way like you say with with the family adventures you know having a family in the UK and and maybe adventuring a bit more here you also trained to be a mountain leader in the UK 
So was that very soon after your diagnosis that you decided that you wanted to do that? Yeah, I, I suppose that that would be the really actually the most significant well, one of the most significant sort of impacts on my um, relationship with the outdoors was that I started to do things a little bit closer to home um, because things I guess got got a bit more family oriented. Um, but also I did book onto my mountain leader. I booked onto my mountain leader training and my assessment. Um, they were within about six six months of each other, which was a bit close, really. And, and I think what I wanted to do was, during my campaign to join, join that Arctic expedition that I went on, I got approached by a lot of people, because my, my story of cancer was very public. Um, I, I was on various newspapers. I was on Good Morning Britain at one point, about wow. it, which is a bit interesting. Um, because it was so public, I actually was receiving a lot of messages from people who maybe just wanted to sort of chew on an ear you know they just wanted to talk about their stories but it, as part of that you know uh, the outdoors is a big part of um, sort of what helped me to deal with any mental health issue I guess for me whether it's been the passing of my father before now or simply a rubbish week at work or my diagnosis with cancer like I say oh gosh you might have cancer right I'm going to the Arctic so I think it motivated me you know I'm not I couldn't really help a lot of these people who were turning to me with their cancer stories I because I didn't really know anything yeah. about breast cancer or lung cancer or anything yeah. like that but I thought to myself you know maybe what I can do is try and help them to find a bit of peace and, and solitude and, and uh, a distraction in the outdoors because it is I mean this is lovely this is where we are now is all very peaceful and, and stuff but it, if nothing it's a distraction isn't it yeah. from you know, sort of what we've left down back in the in the car park sort of thing. And becoming a mountain leader was, I think, one of the steps I wanted to take towards being able to, to help people do that as well. So what's your favourite thing about taking groups into Snowdonia or at least being out in those hills? I'd say the fact, my favourite thing about going out with people is, maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but it is seeing people um, either see things that blow their mind, such as the views, or take on challenges that you know, they didn't think they, they could do, you know, taking on a bit of a scramble, something that might seem relatively easy to a sort of a hardened hill walker, to a beginner, taking on a bit of a scramble, uh, you know, can be a real adrenaline rush. Uh, and, and seeing people sort of take those challenges on is, is, is brilliant. Um, but also, you know, in a completely non-selfless way, I just, it's nice to be out in the hills you know I, I enjoy I enjoy the social aspect of it chatting to people and being where I like to be sort of out outdoors exploring preferably in the sunshine you have come up with an idea called skills for hills was that related to you know wanting to help people who have suffered from cancer can you tell me a little bit more about that yeah so I, I think because I'm nearing the end of my remission now uh can, cancer sort of for the last five years has just been a few checks and blood tests here and there but now it's sort of obviously coming to a quite a pivotal moment it's brought it back to the surface quite a bit for me and I just thought you know uh, th this is a great opportunity especially after the lockdowns and you know people have been really tested haven't they um, desperately trying to get on adventures or breaks or little holidays or just get outdoors um, to areas I haven't been able to and for a lot of people as well maybe they haven't done it much before they're seeing people do it more now because I mean all these areas are, are packed aren't they now mm. like Snowdonia and the Lake District they're full of people because it's it's what we're able to access but of course with that it's fantastic that people are finding 
opportunities in the outdoors and you know solitude after the lockdowns and things like that uh, sort of a bit of a respite after the after the lockdowns but of course they are dangerous places instagram makes it look very pretty and like it's just a selfie haven but in actual fact they are very dangerous uh, things can go wrong and um, one of the things that's always appealed to me about the mountains is that it's a physical and mental challenge it is a difficult place to be but I think it's important that just with a foundation of skills, even just an understanding of the hazards that lie in the mountains, you can then sort of develop and, and build skills on top of that to sort of enjoy them more safely. And once you've got those skills, you're, you're unlocking the mountains then, or, or just our outdoor spaces, um, which can work to help people sort of better their mental health. So you're hoping to take groups out at some point in, in three monthly sessions yes. to people who have, is it specifically for people who have suffered from cancer or been affected by cancer? Um, initially, yes. I found it sort of quite a morally tricky, morally tricky thing to sort of police, you know, mm. not police. Um, you know, oh, have you had cancer? You haven't had cancer? Well, no, you can't come on my course then. Yeah, you know? And yeah. I thought, actually, that's not great for mental health for anyone, is it? Mm. So I definitely opened the door in, in that respect. I'd love on a personal level to reach out to people who've been touched by cancer. And I've, I've had a few messages from people with similar stories to mine who are joining me on, on the course. And they say, oh, you know, it's really interesting to see what you've been through and blah, blah, blah. Can I come on one? Yes, come on one of the courses. I think, I think that's, that's great. But certainly anybody who's been sort of touched by the ill effects of, of mental health or poor mental health, the door is open for them to come and enjoy the hills and, and, and soak up some skills on a monthly basis. So I think I've got three running at the moment, but hopefully we'll add, add more thereafter. And what are your favourite routes in Snowdonia? Because I know lots of people may know the Snowdon Horseshoe, but are there any, you know, special secret spots that you particularly like or routes that you take your groups on that you think are fantastic? I, I like the Canadai, I think, because, you know, I mean, where, where do you go to find the crowds? You go up Snowdon and then the Glitterize a bit uh, busy. And the Canadai quieter still, um, and it's very vast, very big area. It kind of reminds me of, it's a bit sort of Scotland, Highland-esque. Up there so not necessarily any one route but that's a really cool place to go there's a route in the Canedai called the Hlectu Spur that's a scrambling route it's a grade one but if, if you want a sort of a, an exciting day out um, it's a really interesting approach up quite a broad valley big sort of rolling peaks around you uh, and then as you near this this spur it, a really imposing sort of black ridge that's, that's poking at and it absolutely does not look like a grade one scramble you, you will sort of walk towards it thinking nope i'm not going <laughs> up this but actually as, as the path sort of veers around one side and, and, and sort of picks up the, the the ridge about halfway up it's an absolutely incredible um incredible scramble and as well when you when you top out you reach the the summits of the canedi whilst you were on the way up sort of hidden from the rest of snowdonia in this valley as you top out you on a good day are going to have views across the entirety of Snowdonia so that that's uh, a bit of a that'd be a cool one to do. It seems that you obviously have done all these personal expeditions before you became a mountain leader but now with the mountain leader and doing some of these courses and your work we've got now got Jack Williams Mountaineering which is the brand for these courses um, it seems that you're trying to make the outdoors more of your career. It would be nice yeah, so ideally, um, I would like to to make it a career, so make an income from it. It it is a it is a tricky thing to do. I think if we could 
if if anyone could make money off sort of exploring these amazing places, I think everyone would love to do it. Yeah. They? So it is, it is a challenge. I sort of started setting up my mountain leader business um, even just a few months really before the, the coronavirus kicked in. And obviously that scuppered quite mm. a few of my plans, along with so many people's plans, uh, in particular in this industry. It's been really difficult, especially as we, you know, we're, we're, in, we're still being encouraged to exercise and get outdoors and the outdoors have been theoretically safe places and, and to see so many people visit these areas still and yet be told, you know, we can't take groups out into mm. them is, has been has been difficult. It's definitely knocked the wind out of my sails a little mm. bit. But it, 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 it'd be lovely if it was a full-time occupation, but just to sort of be able to make sure it's sustainable and, and get out, that would be great, really. I know that lockdown's been very different, but how often are you out in Sodonia in the hills? Is it is it quite a sort of challenge, I suppose, to juggle with family life, though? That would be the biggest, especially with a new one at the moment. He's seven weeks old. Oh, um, seven weeks old this, this weekend. He's quite demanding, as they are. <laughs> but um, it's definitely more of a balance these days between sort of family life and, and, and big adventures sort of in the mountains. But certainly try and get out as, as much as I can. Um, before the, the little one came along, I was probably out every couple of weeks, which is nice. But as well, th this area, just getting out here. Yeah, well, is, you've got lots of hills around here yeah. for running, walking. You're doing a lot of running at the moment, aren't you? Yes, trying to, so, <laughs> gasping. So. What are you, you're training for an ultra marathon, is that right? Yeah, so the, it's a 50 kilometer uh, run through Snowdonia. Blimey. Um, and it's, I think, about just short of three and a half thousand metres of uphill. Gosh. So that's going to be a bit tear-jerking. <laughs> my knees are crying already. So, so I'm trying my heart, because um, in, in actual fact, it's part of a challenge I'm taking on, which is um, 100 days to ultra, is what I've called it. Again, I'm struggling with catchy names for that one, but um, it's, uh, I'm not really much of a runner. I, I haven't been before. I've done stuff, you know, a few years ago, I ran for a bit and then decided actually running's not that nice so stopped and a few years before that probably did the same thing um so i'm sort of going from a non-runner some previous experience to sort of as a foundation but otherwise as a non-runner to an ultra in, in about 100 days so um it's having to train a lot <laughs> making lots of room for cake though so that's good um, <laughs> with your kids are you trying to do some little, little family adventures so you come up velvet hill and what what do you kind of do with george to try and introduce him to the outdoors so it was easier when he was a bit younger he's i mean he's two now but he's got a he's got a stocky two so we've got a, a good carrier and i used to uh, during lockdown so when he i guess just i think the lockdowns were announced actually on his first birthday so during that time we must have come up here three four times a week but now i i can't come but he can he can walk himself up uh, but he's a bit of a daredevil so he likes steep edges and things like that but i we try and get outside with them as, as much as we can the d the river d actually runs through the end of the garden oh. so we take him down there for a good paddle as often as we can there's some amazing little sort of country parks around here loggerheads got movamai there's a nearby hill um and just i think for me the the best thing for George has been to just let him crack on really. So if I take him out for an adventure, um, so I've, I've tried about five or six times to get him to walk up to the top of Velvet Hill before, come on George, you can do it. Especially before he was two, I was like, come on, while you're one, get to the top of your first hill. And he definitely could have done it, but he gets too distracted. Um, but what I do try and do is, you know, if it's his adventure, lob him on the path and let him explore really. So, And, and Toby will be the same, hopefully, anyway, so. 
What does the outdoors really mean to you, Jack? I, I want to say like freedom in a way. I think it's just, I think, it's a bit cheesy. I think it's that there's just, the only restrictions are um, your, sort of what you're physically capable of. And I appreciate that, you know, maybe the restrictions can come from the elements such as poor weather, cold weather, snowy weather, whatever it might be. But again, you're, you're restricted by your um, physical ability and, and knowledge of, of how to deal with those situations. Um, you know, when you're out in the hills, it's just you in a way, it's what you're capable of doing. Those are the only limitations, um, really. So for me, it's, it's a sense of freedom. So Jack, three people who have inspired your outdoors adventures, who would they be? I'm gonna say, first of all, David Attenborough. Good Which, one. Yeah, I, David Attenborough and the BBC, let's give them all credit, but you know, the planet Earth stuff and, and the, the sort of the, the BBC Earth documentaries, videos, etc., just absolutely mind blowing, aren't they? And I think if, you've, if you ever want some motivation or, or, or reason to, or, or boost, uh, as to why you should go outdoors and explore the world around us. I mean, it's right there, isn't it? It's just incredible. Mm. How about your second person? Second person, maybe a bit closer to home would be my grandpa. So he was in the Navy when he was younger and uh, he, he was on a ship that was attacked and he was put in a wheelchair at 18 years old. So he actually didn't spend a lot of his life wow. climbing up mountains, funnily enough. But he did spend a lot of his life pursuing as much adventure as he could, given his restrictions. He went on incredible adventures in the, the, the Middle East on cruises or, or, or trips and, and things like that, as much as he possibly could do. Maybe not a direct inspiration to adventure, but an inspiration to facing challenges and, and getting out there and, and sort of not taking no for an answer in a way. How about your third? You know, I, I've almost been trying to avoid this. I'm going to say Ronald Fiennes because I just oh, yeah. think, he, yeah, I don't know why I was trying to avoid it. I was trying to find sort of less directly adventure people in a way. The explorer. Me. But yeah, Ronald Fiennes, I mean, he's just so cool. The, it, just in the most incredible stuff from his Arctic expeditions to climbing up Everest uh, and, and how he's, you know, the, the challenges he's, he's faced as a result to those trips, um, like the frostbite, for instance, like hacksawing his own toe off or whatever after after his sort of polar stuff um to his thumb or, or i think coming off in the bath and stuff like this and you know he's bonkers really and i think he's probably really maybe the greatest living adventurer certainly at the moment so uh, just yeah he's gonna be my number three so jack i'm gonna ask you for some tips now if someone is interested in becoming a mountain leader, how do they go about that? How do they find the courses? What kind of skills do you need to already have had? That kind of thing. Okay, so when I first discovered the mountain leader qualification, I, I think I sort of looked at the description of what you needed to have done to take it on. And I was like, right, you need 40 QMDs. That's quality mountain days, 40. That can't be right. 40, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of experience. And I almost was constantly looking for little loopholes. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, when I found it, I probably did have the experience, but uh, there's no shortcuts to it. So yeah. that would be my, my first tip is to, to get out. Just if you want to be a mountain leader, obviously if you've been 
climbing hills for years and you're in a fantastic position you've probably got the experience you need to to get onto the training onto the course and then go out consolidate for a good few months don't rush it uh, and then do the the assessment if you haven't been and you know you've you've had this um, light bulb moment during lockdown where you think you know what i'm tired of I don't know, working behind this desk or whatever it might be i want to go and do something in the outdoors but i'm still relatively new to it uh, then it would be sort of shelve the mountain leader side of it for a bit and just get out and get as much experience as you can because you, you need it anyway develop your skills so ahead of my mountain leader i did a bunch of navigation courses and things like mm. that i mean i'd spent seven eight nine years i don't know whatever it might have been before i did my mountain leader qualification getting lost in the hills and self-teaching myself navigation mm. and experimenting and, and so on so, so i had confidence that said of course being self-taught it was uh who know who knew if it was really how right it was so i did go off and i did um i, th I think three weekends worth of courses for navigation so i'd say get out and you know enjoy absorbing new skills take on courses reach out to current mountain leaders uh see if you can come in the shadow uh, courses things like that i'm always happy to have ideally trained mountain leaders come and shadow courses and and sort of learn new skills or just see what it's like dealing with people because of course you know if you if you go out on your own or you're with mates all the time it's a very different experience to when you're out with so and so who's never been for a walk in the hills before so, yeah because you know. i imagine that's one thing about mountain lead that some that maybe i don't think about enough is that you're actually leading a group you've got to be very good at making that group feel comfortable and i suppose it's a very it's a very social role isn't it i think that's probably almost uh, you know the, the safety in the hills is a given being able to navigate safely lead people identify problems etc in the mountains that's that's sort of a given that's your your base standard in a mm. way i think um that for a lot of people the the, the real skill is is being able to handle um, groups of beginners in the mountains, um, which is it's a tricky thing to get used to. I have a background in sort of customer service and, and retail and that, so I suppose I had some familiarity with that side of things. Uh, but it, it is different. I mean, you have someone in a restaurant complain about their steaks or, or whatever, or um, they've forgotten their card to pay for their meal. It's very different to when someone turns up and they're halfway up a hill and they turn around and say, I've left my water in the car. Mm. Oh, well, this is a problem. So, uh, but these, yeah, the people skills is, is uh, it's a tricky thing to just sort of go and go and get really. So that's where shadowing courses, I mm. think, comes in handy. According to where you, you live, um, you register with the, the, um, the BMC, and then with mountain training, and then you register on the course. So you, you register a hundred different times by the time you've actually, uh, yeah. you're even sort of on the course. And then, um, yeah, getting the QMDs, that's the biggest challenge. Um, and I think a quality mountain day, there's, all kind, there's always debate over what a quality mountain day is, whether you need to have done this, whether you need to have done that. I think it is a day that has pushed you in the mountains. Mm. So whether that's, I think you're looking, like you say, you're looking at a minimum duration. But beyond that, you know, have you tested your navigation? Have the elements tested you? Have you, for instance, done a wild camp? So you've had to, you know, uh, plan an expedition effectively. Um, so a QMD is any day that puts you to the test. And also diversity. You could go and find a QMD somewhere in Snowdonia, but repeating that 40 times doesn't count. You've got to do it all over the UK, really. So. Yeah. How do you fit the outdoors into your day-to-day? -day? Do you have any tricks or tips of how you make sure that you, you are able to get out there? I think um, 
So for me, I guess the, the biggest impact has been having a young family. Um, before that, obviously fitting the outdoors into um, day to day or, or weekly wasn't particularly complicated. You know, it's guess, do you want to go for a walk this weekend? Okay, job done. Whereas now, of course, it's a bit different. So, but what I find is rather than trying to make the my family fit to my outdoor interests, it's fitting the outdoor around them. And, and also I think communicating as a family. So, um, for instance, with the running at the moment, it's been quite important for me to sort of schedule it so there's no uh, nasty surprises for my wife when she's abandoned with the kids for the night or something <laughs> like that. They're screaming. But but also, rather than me trying to get out, oh gosh, shall I leave them all at home? I'm going to Snowdonia this weekend. It's more because I want to climb this mountain or whatever it might be. Um, for me, it's more, right, actually, let's fit the mountains around the kids and try and find one that they can do. Mm. And, and to be honest, it's... It, Maybe it's easy to think, oh, well, you know, aren't you missing out on Cribgok or, or, or Helvellyn or whatever it might be? Because you can't, shouldn't really probably bet a two-year-old walk across that. <laughs> but, you, you know, honestly, with the kids, it's coming up here to Velvet Hill, which is pretty tiny compared to the peaks in Snowdonia. It's the biggest adventure. It's awesome. You know, it's so, it's so much more rewarding. So I think that for, for anybody, the key is to just sort of communicating with the, the people around you making sure that they understand when you plan on, on doing things and, and that way it becomes less of a burden, I suppose, more just part of daily family life in a way. Thank you very much. It has been such a gorgeous spot to record this podcast in as well. I'm absolutely boiling now because <laughs> it's really sunny, isn't it? It is nice, yeah. But we, we've had gorgeous views for this and to explore a part of, you know, Clangoslin, I, I drive past it often on the way to Snowdonia and I will not do that in the future. I will make sure that I stop here. I'll drop in for a cup of tea. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But thank you very much for sharing your story and we're going to continue our walk now back to the car park. But yeah, hopefully we'll do another walk in future. Cool, sounds good. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Jack's episode. You can see photos of our recording and Jack's adventures on the Outdoors Fix website or on Instagram at the Outdoors Fix. You'll also find him on Instagram at jackwilliams.adventurer. If you want to make the outdoors a bigger part of your life, why not get inspired by some of my other guests? People like Becky Angel, who went from working in banking to hiking 950 miles across the UK. Just have a browse through the dozens of previous episodes of The Outdoors Fix. If you like the podcast, it would be brilliant if you could rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, and if you could tell your friends and family about it to help spread the word. Regular listeners of The Outdoors Fix will know that I end each episode with some sounds of nature. So now it's that time to take a short moment to relax and listen to the sounds from my walk along the Glen Nevis Valley in Scotland a few weeks ago. I hope you enjoy it.
This episode of The Outdoors Fix was supported by outdoor footwear brand Merrill. Merrill is launching a year-long campaign called Hashtag Step Further to encourage people from all walks of life to get outdoors on a micro-adventure to experience the benefits for both their physical and mental health.